Morning. Okay. We're a little behind this morning, so I'm going to have to speak fast. So turn up your ears. Open up your bulletins. I don't have a specific text this morning because we're going to do something a little different. Open up your bulletins. On the inside of those bulletins, you'll find an outline called, titled this message, Remembering the Reformation. Remembering the Reformation. Some churches will, will celebrate or at least acknowledge today as Reformation Sunday. Reformation Sunday. By a show of hands, how many of you are familiar at all with what that is? Okay, good. Quite a few of you are not. So today I want to just break from 1 John and I want to give some attention to this uh, religious holiday. For those of you who don't know or you're not certain or exactly what Reformation Sunday is, it is typically celebrated on the last Sunday in October, which happens to be this Sunday, and it's in remembrance of a very significant event that took place in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, October, October 31st, 1517. That's now almost 500 years ago. That historical event involved a German man who was a monk, a priest, and a professor of theology, and his name was Martin Luther. Any of you heard that name before? Martin Luther. He was, by the way, a devoted Catholic at the time, at the time of these events, a devoted Catholic. It is said of Martin Luther, and I don't think it can be said of many men, but it is said of Martin Luther that he committed most of the New Testament and great portions of the Old Testament to memory. To memory. Think about that. Most of the New Testament and great portions of the Old Testament. Based on his careful study of those scriptures that he held dear, that he memorized, that he read, and some events that were taking place at the time in Martin Luther's life, he came to the conclusion that there were certain practices within the Catholic Church and even beliefs and abuses by those granted authority by the Catholic Church that needed to be addressed and corrected. Okay? That needed to be addressed and corrected. Now remember, he was a devoted Catholic. As a result of his conclusions, on October 31st, 1517, he nailed a document containing his concerns to the church door, as we are told by historians, in Wittenberg, and he also mailed a copy of this document to his bishop. This document that was attached to the church door is commonly referred to as the 95 Theses. The 95 Theses. That is not the actual title of the document, but that is what it is typically referred to as. It was a series of statements and some questions, but mostly statements regarding Luther's concerns with the Catholic Church. He was raising concerns with the Catholic Church. Now, at this point, I would recommend a movie, and the movie's not going to be entirely accurate. It's a movie, but it's, it's very good at get, kind of bringing you up to speed if you have no idea what this is all about. It's called Luther. And it's the newer one, not the older one. It was done in 2003. It's called Luther. If you've never seen it, I would recommend you go out, you rent it, and you have your family watch it. It will help you really understand some of the things that were going on at that time. 
Now, I want you to understand something else. Luther was not a rebel. He was not a rebel to the Catholic Church. He was a devoted Catholic. And the nailing of this document to the church door was not unusual. That might sound like something extreme, but it wasn't. It was the traditional way of inviting the academic community to discuss an issue. Okay? So we might have a different way of doing that, but this is how they did it back then. They nailed this document, these 95 theses to the church door, and it was an invitation to have a discussion about the concerns that Luther had about the Catholic Church. Now, the document was originally written in Latin and not intended by Luther to be distributed to the general public. But it was eventually translated by others into German, published, and spread throughout Germany. Okay, So the document that he wrote that was specifically just a call to order, a discussion about these things, ended up spreading all throughout Germany, even though that was not his original intent. One writer adds this from one book, a good resource I have. It said, Luther's concern touched a responsive chord in many who were restive with the church. We're trying to figure this thing out. We have, we have done so many things, just so you know, to figure out what's going on with the demon that lives inside of this device. Lord, help us. So, flipping to the pulpit, Mike. Luther's concerned. It touched a responsive chord when this thing went out with many who were restive in the church. What's restive mean, they, you know, these words? It just means uneasy or impatient. The, the church at the time was no longer willing because of things that were going on, to be guided by this church. They were restive with the church, many of them, either for their materialistic corruptions or for their inadequate spiritual care that they felt was happening. Okay, So this simple document that Luther posted on the church door certainly led to more than he ever could have anticipated when he originally did that. Now listen, the Catholic Church, unwilling at the time, unwilling to be questioned about anything or to consider possible reforms or even have their practices and their beliefs examined or held up against the light of Scripture, unwilling to do that, eventually labeled Martin Luther, monk, priest, professor of theology, devoted Catholic, they eventually labeled him a heretic, and they excommunicated him from the church. They kicked him out. They booted him out. He was no longer part of the church in their eyes. Additionally, because the church and the government were tightly connected in these days, Charles V, who was under an oath, can you imagine this? He's the emperor. He's under an oath to defend the Roman Catholic Church as emperor and to remove all heresy from the empire. Can you imagine? So once the Catholic Church says you're a heretic and you are the emperor and you have an oath to defend the Roman Catholic Church and to remove all heresy, guess what? They declared him an outlaw. Now Luther was an outlaw, a criminal for his beliefs. But Luther was able to escape before he was caught and sentenced, which would have probably been death. However, none of that 
None of all of that could have stopped the movement that had begun, which is a movement that we now refer to as the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation. Beloved, this is a movement that caused countless people to withdraw from the tyrannical rule and oversight of the corrupted Roman Catholic Church. It is a movement that ultimately rescued the pure gospel of Jesus Christ from the foul errors that had been woven into it by misguided men. It was a movement that elevated the Word of God, the Bible, to its rightful place and authority in the church of God. It is a movement that restored Jesus Christ to His place of preeminence and supremacy because He alone is the head of the church and He alone is the only way to eternal life. My intent this morning is not to give you a church history lesson. Okay, lesson. That's why I'm, I'm skipping over a ton of details. But if you are interested in learning more about this and other significant events that I think would be quite helpful for you to understand and to know, because it would give you a foundation to understand how did we get here, religiously speaking? How did we arrive at this place in the 21st century? And that's going to require you to study church history. There's a book that I love. It's titled Church History in Plain Language. That's why I like it, right? Church History in Plain Language, language that you and I can understand. It's by Bruce L. Shelley. I recommend the book to you highly. It it takes you all the way from 6 B.C. to 1996, okay? And takes you through church history specifically. What I want to focus on today is five important lessons that came out of, actually not lessons, they're phrases, that came out of the Protestant Reformation that begin with or were set off by what Martin Luther did on October 31st, 1517. These important phrases represented the core beliefs of the Reformers and were developed to draw clear lines of distinction between the Catholic Church and the church communities who had separated themselves or had been separated from the Catholic Church because of their beliefs. The statements or phrases are often, often referred to as the five solas. Solas. Since each Latin phrase, and that's what they are, begin with a form of that Latin word, sola. Okay? So now, if you look inside of your bulletins, you'll see this outline. We're going to briefly review, and I mean briefly, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation so that basically we can understand and value better our religious heritage. Okay? So, the five solas are sola scriptura, which in the English means scripture alone, sola fide, which is faith alone, sola gratia, which is grace alone, solo Christo, which is Christ alone, sometimes also solus Christus, which is the same idea, basically, through Christ alone, and also the fifth, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Okay, those are the five solas. We're not going to spend an extended period of time on each one, though we easily could. So these are going to be just brief 
encounters with each sola to raise your awareness and hopefully encourage you to do some more investigation in regard to the Protestant Reformation. It is why we're not Catholic. Just so you understand. It is why we're not Catholic. It is because of the Protestant Reformation. Sola Scriptura. Let's begin with that one. Scripture alone. Scripture alone. This phrase was meant to communicate the idea that the Holy Bible, the Holy Bible, that's Scripture, okay, and nothing else, that's the idea of alone, the Holy Bible alone is the authoritative source for the Christian's faith and behavior. It is the authoritative source for the Christian's faith, what they believe, and for the behavior, what they do and what they don't do, and how the church is conducted and how it's not to be conducted. We know that is a correct and important statement because it is Scripture, beloved, that is uniquely inspired by, or more more literally, breathed out by God. Right? Isn't that what the Word of God tells us? You know these passages... Nothing new here, but maybe these solas are new to you. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. There Paul writes, All Scripture, all of it, every word of it, is breathed out by God. Therefore, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Because of the divine nature of Scripture, that is, it is not just the word of men. Okay? It is not just the word of men. We know men are prone to err and to make mistakes. Is that not right? Men are prone to err and make mistakes. But that is not the book we have. We have the divine word of God delivered to us by men, but inspired by God and the Holy Spirit. So then it is therefore the perfect, infallible, unerring Word of God. It is the perfect, infallible, unerring, or infallible, unerring Word of God. And because of that, it is the only standard of spiritual truth. It is the only ultimate standard of spiritual truth that you and I can trust. It therefore must have the final word on matters of faith and practice. It must, it must define the doctrines of the church, what a church believes. It must have the final say on what Christians should and should not do. It must have the final say on what Christians should believe and should not believe in regard to the Christian faith. Now listen, that scripture alone is the ultimate authority and not the Pope and not the traditions of a church and not the decisions of church councils is the issue that was being raised and challenged during the Reformation. That was the issue. Who has ultimate authority? Is it the Pope? Is it church councils? Is it the traditions of the church? Or is it sola scriptura? Martin Luther was accused by the Catholic Church of preaching dangerous doctrines. Dangerous doctrines. 
So Luther began to insist on scriptural proof that he was wrong. Doesn't that make sense? Listen, if I'm preaching dangerous doctrines, show me. Show me where I have erred, and I will repent. That was Luther's response. During an 18-day debate in 1519 with John Eck, he was a staunch defender of Roman Catholicism, Luther blurted these words out, A council may sometimes err. Neither the church nor the pope can establish articles of faith. Articles of faith are simply, this is what we believe, or what someone believes. He went on to say, these things must come from Scripture. Beloved, that was radical back then. Do you understand? That was radical. That got him into the trouble that he was in. What do you mean the Pope doesn't establish what the church does? That was radical. Scripture alone. During the Protestant Reformation, these words were recorded by one group of reformers to express their commitment to sola scriptura. You can look it up. It's in the Belgic Confession, but I wanted to read it to you. I thought it was helpful. So here's a group of reformers that are saying, we are committed to sola scriptura. This is what they wrote back in the 16th century, 17th century. We believe that the Holy Scriptures fully contain the will of God and that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. Neither may we consider any writings of men, however holy these men may have been, of equal value with those divine scriptures, nor ought we to consider custom, or the great multitude, or antiquity, or succession of times and persons, or councils, decrees, or statutes, as of equal value with the truth of God. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts Whatsoever does not agree with this infallible rule. To say that Scripture alone is our ultimate authority, and that is what we say as Protestants, does not mean that God has not established other authorities, okay? We know from God's Word that elders or pastors have been given authority in the church. So you can see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 12 through 13 or Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17. We also know that parents have authority over their children. Yes, that's right. They do. That's right from the word of God. Okay? So we know that to be right. That's right, brother. That was for you. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1. And we also know, you may not like this, but it is true that the government has authority over its people. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. But what it, and so, we know that that's the case, but we know that Scripture alone, just because it's our ultimate authority, it does not mean that there are not other authorities. But here's what we will say. Because Scripture alone is the ultimate authority, when those other authorities depart from God's Word or are contradict God's Word, then we have the right and the responsibility I would say, to disobey those other authorities, to go against them, and to follow the ultimate authority. Okay, so we have a question on our our membership application. It says, please explain to us what it means to come under the loving rule of the elders of Summit Bible Church. What does that mean? And it's in Hebrews, that passage there in 13, chapter 13. So we ask people to explain that. And sometimes I will say to them, 
Coming under the loving authority or the rule of the elders certainly does not mean that the elders can ask you to do whatever they want you to do. It always must stem from the ultimate authority in the church. I am not a pope. I am not God. I am just a sinner saved by grace who also comes under the same authority. So it's the same way with my children. I remember telling them, listen, you must obey. I mean, you know, that was when I was upset. And then when I was not upset, I would have a better conversation with them. You know what I'm saying, parents? But I would take them to the passage. It says right here, you want good things in your life? Children, obey your parents. This is the first, you know, the first commandment with the promise. You better listen up. But then I would explain to them, after, you know, I was, had, came to my sense, I would explain to them that, listen though, listen, here's what that, here's what that also means. We're taking it from the Word of God, right? If mom and dad ever asked you to do something that went against the Word of God, I'm telling you right now, you have permission to say no. You have the responsibility to say no. And what that does for your kids is they go, whoa, wait a minute. Mom and dad also are under authority. That's right. We're not tyrannical rulers, hopefully not. We're not a pope that stands up and whatever he says goes no matter what. We answer to this authority just like you. So we're going to skip some parts here because we're so far out of time. But I hope that the word Bible in Summit Bible Church, I hope that word will serve as a reminder to all of us that the Scriptures alone, beloved, have supreme authority over this church, over its teachings, and over its practices, and Lord willing, over its people in their lives. It is God's Word, and God's Word alone, that should always stand over us in judgment. We do not stand as judges over God's Word. It judges us. It judges us. We come under it. Sola Scriptura. And because it is perfect as it has been given, it does not need... Any more additions? And we dare not take away from it in any way. It is already perfect and complete. That's sola scriptura. That was the first one. That's huge. Because all of these other solas are built upon the Word of God. That is the ultimate authority in our lives. Sola fide, the second one. Sola fide, faith alone. Now this phrase was meant to communicate that salvation, hear me, salvation cannot be earned incrementally, that's like in stages, bit by bit, earning it little by little, or contributed to in any way by us. There is nothing we can do to make us right with God. There is no religious deed or a good work that we can perform that will appease God and turn away His righteous wrath from us. It is not faith and good works that reconcile you with God and grant you a place in heaven when you die. But rather, it is faith alone. And more specifically, it is faith in the good and perfect work of Jesus Christ that He has already 
accomplished. It is faith or trust in the sinless one, believing he, willingly beloved, made himself a substitute on the cross for you as a sinner. It is trusting that he, Jesus, took all, not some, but all of the wrath of God that you deserved and that I deserved. It is believing because of Jesus' sacrifice and only because of Jesus' sacrifice that your sins and my sins, past, present, and future, have been nailed to the cross. Colossians 2 verse 14, and punished there. And as a result, we can be fully forgiven by God. It is faith not in my own righteousness. I'm a sinner. But it is faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ that God graciously imputes or credits to those who who trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. You know this passage. It couldn't be more clear. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And if you're not clear, not a result of works not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. Paul goes on to say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, now it is evident, it is clear, overwhelmingly clear, that no one is justified before God by the law. No one is justified before God by the law. You'd have to keep the law perfectly in order to live up to the righteous standard of the law. No one's justified by the law. Rather, the righteous shall live by faith. By faith. Faith in the righteous one. According to one source, in 1515, Martin Luther, after meditating on God's Word, specifically the book of Romans, he came to the conclusion that, and now I'm quoting from this resource, this book that I recommended, man is saved only by his faith, in the merit of Christ's sacrifice. The cross alone can remove man's sin and save him from the grasp of the devil. Luther had come to his famous doctrine of justification by faith alone. He saw how sharply it clashed with the Roman church's doctrine of justification by faith and good works. Later on, Martin Luther wrote a hymn to describe his spiritual journey from anxiety to conviction. The man had a lot of anxiety because he was always trying to measure up, always trying to live up, and he always felt he never did. He was always wondering, am I saved? Am I going to heaven? And then Romans blew open his mind as he realized, I am justified with God by faith alone. And so he wrote this hymn. It goes like this. In devil's dungeon chained I lay. 
The pangs of death swept over me. My sin devoured me night and day in which my mother bore me. My anguish ever grew more rife, that's full and more frequent. I took no pleasure in my life, and sin had made me crazy. And then the last part. Thus spoke the Son, hold thou to me. From now on thou will make it. I gave my life for thee, and for thee I will stake it. For I am thine, and thou art mine. And where I am, our lives entwine. The old fiend, that's the devil, cannot shake it. Beloved, the implications of justification by faith alone were and are significant. Quoting again from this book, If salvation comes through faith in Christ alone, and it does, the intercession of priests is superfluous. I know these words. Not necessary. Meaning not necessary. The intercession of priests is not necessary. Faith formed and nurtured by the Word of God, written and preached, listen, requires no monks, no masses, no prayers to the saints. The mediation of the Church of Rome crumbles into insignificance. You see how serious this was? Meaning that the church mediating for you and God, between you and God, and helping you get there, that all crumbles in light of justification by faith alone. Pretty serious stuff. Third, sola gratia, grace alone. We could spend weeks here, but again, I'm just trying to get your foot dipped into the water about these things, make you familiar with these phrases, make you clear about why we are where we are at the Protestant Reformation. This phrase was meant to communicate the only reason anyone is saved. It is solely because of God's grace, His undeserved and unmerited favor upon humanity. It is because of that that sinful people are saved from His wrath that is to come. Grace is seen in in this fact that the Bible says our salvation is a gift, right? We know that, right? Salvation is a gift. It's not a reward for a life well lived. It's a gift. And that gift is simply received by faith. It is not purchased. It is not earned. Because if it was, then it would no longer be a gift. Salvation, eternal life with God, absolute freedom from God's condemnation, it is a gift, and it is a gift like no other gift. It is a gift from our Creator, a gift from God who loves and has sovereignly determined to save rebellious sinners from what they justly deserve. And give them what they don't deserve. Forgiveness. Eternal life. Heaven. The blessings of the Father. Ephesians 1. You know this passage probably as well. Just going to read through it. I love this passage. Verses 3 through 8. 
Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's writing to Christians. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, that is Jesus. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He, what's that word? Lavished. I love that word. Lavished upon us. It means that He poured out His grace in excess, in abundance, overflowing. It reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 5, verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God's grace abundantly, beloved, overcomes the believer's sins. Every single one of them. Why did the Reformers make a distinction, or this particular distinction, grace alone? Well, this is why. Because the Catholic Church taught that people are saved, hear me, they are saved through the combination of God's grace and the merits, or spiritual credits, if you will. When I think of credits, I always think of back in the day, you know, you put a quarter in the old uh, arcade game, right? And you can put ten quarters in, you have ten credits. Think of it that way. You've deposited money in the bank, so you have credits now. They combine God's grace with these spiritual credits that you supposedly accumulate through good works and then some man-made system of penance. If you're not Catholic or you don't have a Catholic background, then you may not know what penance is, but it's, a, it's the process of undergoing some punishment for your sins that is either self-imposed or imposed by the priests or the hierarchy of the church. So... Good works, penance, and oh, by the way, there's a surplus of merits that the saints before have accumulated and they're storing up in a treasury of merits. And you take all of that stuff and put it together and that is how you will be saved. But the reformers responded with, it is by grace alone. That's it. It is by grace alone that anyone is saved. Not your good works, not your penance, not some good things that the saints before have done. It is by grace alone. It is undeserved. It is God's favor upon a people who deserve His wrath. Finally, or actually for solo Christo, Christ alone. Christ alone. This phrase was meant to communicate Jesus' preeminent role in the salvation of sinners and their unrestricted access to God through Him alone. You know this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator 
Not one God, two mediators. Not one God, three mediators. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. Who is that? The man Christ Jesus. That distinction, Christ alone, was a necessary statement among the reformers, not because the Catholic Church outright rejected Jesus Christ. They certainly did not. Nor because they said that he wasn't the Savior. They said he was the Savior. But it was because in their religious system, they added, and still do, mediators between God and men, such as priests or saints or even Mary, the mother of Jesus. No one, listen, beloved, according to the Scriptures, no one other than Christ can legitimately offer the sinner access to God. For no one other than Christ has done what is necessary to redeem them and justify them before God, thereby obtaining their access, free and open because of Christ. Christ alone is the sole mediator or go-between for God and men because Christ alone is the one whose substitutionary sacrifice permanently reconciles believing sinners to a holy God and brings them into everlasting fellowship with the Father. It is Christ alone. Quoting from another source, it says, The Catholic Church taught that we are saved by the merits of Christ and the saints, and that we approach God through Christ, the saints, and Mary, who all pray and intercede for us. The reformers responded, No. No. We are saved by the merits of Christ alone. And we come to God through Christ alone. Finally, soli Deo Gloria. It is to the glory of God alone. This phrase was meant to communicate that glory belongs, it's pretty obvious, to God alone. And it does not belong to men or to popes or to man-made religious systems. It does not belong to them. Accordingly, as Christians, our redeemed lives then should not be lived for our glory, but for His, right? For His honor and praise. For the honor and praise of the only one who is truly worthy of all honor and praise and glory. And as you and I think about our salvation, if we are saved this morning, our redemption, it would be wrong, beloved, for us to attribute glory to anyone else but God. Since our salvation, according to the Scriptures, cannot be attributed partly to God and partly to someone else. It cannot be. Even if they're in the church. Even if they're a holy man. It can only be attributed to God. For it is God alone 
who sovereignly took the initiative to seek out and rescue sinners according to His divine will and wisdom. And the truth is this, that apart from God and His actions, you and I, apart from that, you and I would have no hope. But rather just the terrible certainty of a future eternal punishment apart from God because of our sin. To the glory of God alone, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30-31, through 31, but by His doing, God, but by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boast, let him who brag, let him do it in the Lord. You get that? God has done it in such a way that only He and He alone can rightly receive praise and honor and glory for the salvation of sinners. We would be wise to mimic the angels and the elders and the four living creatures that we find in Revelation 7, there in verse 11, where it says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, the, the five solos, and we whiz through them. We whiz through them. There's so much more. But the five solos of the Protestant Reformation, they are just as valid and relevant today as they were 500 years ago. May we give the Scriptures the honor that they are due, making them the only authoritative source for our Christian faith and practice. And may we be fully convinced and persuaded that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot. Nor can submission to a church or a religious system save us. But it is God alone who saves sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which means that He alone should receive all glory. And may we who have been redeemed, have been redeemed because of His grace, continually make it our purpose in our lives to live for His glory. May our hearts find agreement with the psalmist who recorded these words in Psalm 96.3. Great is the Lord and greatly 
to be praised. Let's pray. Father God, we took a lot of history and a lot of stuff that came out of this period of time that we refer to as the Protestant Reformation. A lot of blood was spilt, Father, for these solos, for this stand, according to your word. Father, we didn't have time to talk about the counter-reformation that the Catholic Church enacted, where they begin to put to death those who simply wanted to go back to what the Word of God said, who simply wanted to see the Catholic Church corrected where it had erred, but being unwilling to submit themselves to the Word, but instead resting in the authority of popes and men. They systematically put out those who who even raised the issue and even put them to death. Father, our spiritual heritage is built upon the backs of, of men and women who sacrifice greatly for the truth of your word. Father, I wish we could, we could really understand that and get a hold of that. And I pray today that maybe some will investigate further. They'll really search and try to figure out exactly what, what went on. Why are we where we are today? Why aren't we Catholic? Why are there Protestants? Oh, the, the, the heritage is rich, Father. May we even reflect upon these five simple statements, simple but profound and deep that we could easily spend weeks on each one alone going through all that they mean and imply for us. Father, I, I pray though that we would just consider them, we would think about them, that we would right our wrong thinking if it is wrong. And Father, we would, we would relish the truths that we find in these things. Scripture alone is our authority. It is by faith Alone, by your grace alone, Father, in our Savior Christ alone, that we are saved, that anyone can be saved. We did not deserve it. We did not earn it. We can do nothing even to keep it. It is all because of you, Father. And because of that, you deserve all glory alone. And may our lives then reflect that reality. May we put away our idols. May we put them away. They are worthless. They cannot compete. They should not compete against you. For you are grand and magnificent. And you alone are worthy of every piece of our lives. You are worthy of our minds, of our heart, of our hands, of our feet, of our pocketbooks, of our time, of our talents. You are worthy, for you alone have saved us. We pray all these things in our Savior's name, the one who came and willingly laid down his life in our place, that we might be forgiven and declared right with you. In Jesus' name, amen.